All right, welcome back to Baseball Banter. I'm your host, Justin Ginelli. Today we are moving on to the American League East as we will break down the Mount Rushmore for the Orioles, the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Rays, and the Blue Jays. And joining me today for that is going to be John Stewart. John will help me with what his thoughts are on his American League East and you know, we're going we're gonna to do something a little bit different, especially in terms of what we're going to do with the New York Yankees, because that is a franchise with such rich history. You really just can't pick four. So we're going to kind of dive into that as well. So first, I want to welcome John in. John, welcome. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me. All right. Um, you know, the American League East has been, you know, a division with a lot of history. You know, a, a team like the Baltimore Orioles, who were great in the 60s and 70s and even had some pretty good years in the mid-2010s. Um, the Red Sox, obviously, were you know had some great players who never won a World Series, but they also were... They've been great over the past 15 years, ever since they broke the curse. Had some really great teams. The Yankees, obviously, that, that history speaks for themselves. Um, the Rays, really, ever since they got to their first World Series in 2008, they've been a pretty consistent team year after year. And then and then the, the, the Blue Jays have had their on and off success. So, I mean, it's definitely a division with a lot of history. And the first team I want to start with is the Baltimore Orioles. The Orioles were a franchise that, you know, moved from St. Louis in the 1950s they were the St. Louis Browns from 1902 to 1953 before becoming the Orioles in 54. And, you know, they're a team that's, that have won three World Series. And, you know, I'm going to wait snow time and start with player number one. And that player number one is Cal Ripken Jr. Cal, obviously we know Cal for the consecutive games played streak, and that is one of the greatest, if not greatest, uh, records in not just baseball, but all the professional sports. Yes. It is an unbreakable record. Um, especially the way the game is now. Uh, yeah, especially the way the game is now with the way that guys take days off. You know, we we say that, you know, like, for example, we say that Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak is unbreakable, which I do believe it is. I don't believe anybody will ever get to 57. However, I do believe that there's a better chance somebody gets to 57 than somebody gets to Cal Ripken's games played streak. I agree with you. Because, you know, and if I'm not mistaken, Whit Merrifield is at like 400 and I don't even have the full number off the top of my head. But he's in the 400s and that is the current leader for consecutive games played right now. I mean, you just don't see guys play 162 games anymore and you know for years you for years Cal Ripken was in the lineup each and every day until he finally pulled himself out um I believe it was late in the 1995 or 19 or in the 98 season it lasted up until 98 95 is when he broke it yeah for comparison, Whit Merrifield is at four hundred forty-three. Yeah, and who and who knows how long, how much, how how many games he's really going to last? You know, how, you know how how many games he's really going to last for that streak? But and, and just just briefly, you know, to go off this, 
the reason, part of the reason, certainly, that Whit Merrifield is able to play so many games in a row is because the Royals, you know, aren't, you know, they haven't really been in it. You know, if they were a legit playoff, like, contender, Whit, the management would be having Whit take some games off here and there because he's one of their best players. Yeah. So. Yeah, very, very it's fair. It's a confluence of events. Yeah, and he is not somebody who has been around in the league long enough. He was not on the 2015 Royal roster that won the World Series. So he really hasn't been on any Royals teams that have had really any form of success. Now, when we look at Cal's career, he won the Rookie of the Year in 1982, was an MVP in 1983, also won the World Series that year. He won the MVP again in 1991. And he also made 19 All-Star teams. Um, He won a home run derby. He was a two-time Gold Glove winner, eight-time Silver Slugger Award winner, and two-time All-Star Game MVP. So, I mean, the the numbers speak for itself. And, you know, in an era where we see nowadays where guys go different places, you know, free agency is prevalent across all sports. And you know, and it was to and it was to a degree in the '80s because it really got started in the '70s when Kurt Flood fought for free agency. It took all that to court, and you know, wanted players to have the decision after X amount of years to choose where they want to go. Cal Ripken spent his entire career with the Baltimore Orioles, all 21 seasons, mm-hmm. and, and there's something to there's certainly something to be said about that. And he compiled 3,184 hits. 431 home runs, which for a shortstop who did turn into a third baseman a little bit later in his career, that you know those are terrific numbers. 1,695 RBIs, um, 1,647 runs scored. I mean, the numbers certainly speak for themselves. So, you know, Cal Ripken, a well-deserved number one. Uh, number two, Brooks Robinson. This man was a... Vacuum at third base. Could be, if not the greatest defensive third baseman of all time. 16-time Gold Glove Award winner and 18-time All-Star. He won the MVP in 1964. He was a World Series MVP, an All-Star Game MVP, and has two World Series championships to his ledger. Another player who played his entire career at the Baltimore Orioles. And, you know, in his MVP year in 1964, he led the league with 118 RBIs at 28 homers and batted 317 that year while notching 194 hits. He finished with 2,848 career hits, 482 doubles, 1,357 RBIs, and played almost 2,900 games in the big leagues, all with the Baltimore Orioles. Yeah. I mean, the, the resume for Brooks really speaks for itself. I mean, how many, I mean, how many times would he save a team, would he save his team, and by making this great play, I mean, it's really no comparison. I mean, you know, people who are our age can marvel at how great Nolan Arenado is at third right. base, you know, because he's won nine Gold Gloves in his career. 
you know, this, you know, Brooks Robinson won 18. I mean, 116. 16. So that's almost double. Yeah. Almost double. It's really not, it's really insane. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, just some quick thoughts. Uh, sure. You know, you really brought up everything with uh, with both Cal and Brooks. Um, especially the fact that both spend their whole careers with the Orioles. That really, you know, that really matters for, like, a franchise Mount Rushmore guy. Um, the 18 uh, All-Star Games, 16 Gold Gloves speak for itself. Um, and he wasn't just an all-defense guy. For his career, he had uh, 2,848 hits. Yeah. So he was, he was a good offensive player and one of the great defensive players ever. And then Cal Ripken, of course, just, you know, how incredible it was for baseball – um, you know, coming off of uh, the strike year in 94 when yeah. feelings were at really an all-time low for baseball, you know, just for really for all fan bases. And then and the 95 season started a little late. Yep. For, uh, for Cal to break what all thought was an unbreakable record for one of the great players of all time, Lou Gehrig. Uh, that was it's one of the great achievements in baseball history. And uh, certainly he's number one for the Orioles. Yeah. Uh, player, so player number three, I have Jim Palmer. Jim Palmer, I mean, three Cy Young Award wins in the 1970s. Was co- he was coming up when they, when they faced the Dodgers in the 1966 World Series. Obviously, he was a part of the teams in the 70s that were, that were good. Led the league in wins three straight years from 75 to 77. And he compiled a combined sixty-five wins in those three in those three years. You know, and in, in, a, in a time where we don't see guys start more than 32, 33, Jim Palmer was starting 37, 38, 40 times in a season. You know, yep. something that was unheard of. He led the league with twenty-two complete games in nineteen seventy-seven, and he finished runner-up that year. So not only did he win three Cy Youngs, he finished runner-up twice. And even at age 36 in 1982, he was 15-5 and five with a 3.13 ERA and finished, and finished runner-up in that, in that Cy Young Award. So, I mean, Jim Palmer, certainly the greatest pitcher in Orioles history. Yes. Um, and, you know, certainly somebody... Certainly somebody you... You just did not want. You just did not want to face. Now, he wasn't a high strikeout guy. He did combine. He did compile two thousand two hundred and twelve strikeouts, which is no, which is no. Sh- nothing you know, to, nothing, nothing to, sneeze to sneeze at. But he did throw fifty two innings short of four thousand innings. So I mean, while his strikeout numbers weren't all that ridiculously high, you know, he was pitching an insane amount of innings. I mean. When do you see somebody? I mean, just think about it these days. When do you see somebody throw three hundred and fifteen innings in a season? Never. They'll never happen ne- again. Not never. It's never going to happen again. And the man, if you get to two hundred innings, that's an accomplishment these days. Two hundred innings, even one hundred and fifties is become innings is becoming an accomplishment. <laughs> yeah, which is that a, I mean, a sad state of affairs for. And baseball. that's kind of what you look at when you when you're talking about these pitchers from. 50 years ago, even 30 years ago to now. And 
you know, all the all the starts. It was a four man rotation. Guys were if you were starting, you were out there. Unless you were really bad that day, you you were basically going the distance. You, yeah, you know, it was basically your your game, and bullpens didn't really exist. I mean, there were the occasional relievers, but the bullpen was really a non-factor at that point. So, I mean, I think it's, it's, but I think it's still incredible to not just to, to see the durability of these pitchers, because we've we've seen how fragile a lot of pitchers are in the game today, and. Yep. I don't think anybody has a concrete answer as to why, you know, why we're seeing more arms being blown out. I mean, I know guys are throwing harder, but that to me is the main thing. But, but there's always been a history of guys throwing extremely hard. Nolan Ryan. I mean, Nolan Ryan is the pure, he's the exception to the rule. It seems like if it does, I mean, it does feel like that. I, you know, I feel like Sandy Koufax was a hard thrower. Uh, I mean, he was also known for that great curveball he had. But, yeah, I guess it it does seem like Nolan Ryan might have been the exception to the rule back then. And that just guys are not really equipped to be great pitchers. They're equipped to be great throwers. And I think that is the biggest difference is guys were great pitchers back then. So I have Jim Palmer at number three. And number four... I think this is the one that could be of the most debate, but I selected Eddie Murray as my fourth. And, you know, Eddie Murray hit 504 home runs in his career. 343 of those were with the with the Orioles. He compiled 1,224 RBIs, uh, 1,084 runs scored, and 2,080 hits. Um... Now, do you have a different fourth choice? or Because I know we're definitely in agreement on Ripken, Robinson, and Palmer. Did you compile a different number four? I did go with Eddie Murray as well at number four. And the main reason being, um, you know, he played the majority of his career, um, 13 years with the Orioles, had yes. his best years there. Yes, he did. He had... Almost 350 home runs with them. Yep. Over 2,000 hits. Um, he had five consecutive top five MVP finishes, which is a huge accomplishment. That means he was one of the five best players in baseball, or at least in the American League, five years in a row. I wonder, and, and as well as he was on their um, World Series team in 83. Right. For me. And he won, and he won Rookie of the Year in 1977. Yeah. I wonder why he never won. Uh, yeah. Now, I do believe that there has always been the rumors that the media never really liked him. Mm. So I wonder if that's the reason why he was never an MVP. Because, I mean, five straight top five finishes and finishing sixth the year before the first of the five top five. I mean, those, you know, that's nothing to, that's nothing, that's definitely nothing to sneeze at. And he finished. And, you know, not with the Orioles, but he finished fifth in the MVP voting in 1990 for the Los Angeles Dodgers. So, I mean, throughout throughout his career, you know, he and he also made uh, eight all-star teams and a three-time Silver Slugger winner. So, so who, yep. who won the 1982 MVP? 
So 82 MVP went to Robin Yount. It looks like it was well-deserved. He had a war of 10.5, which no one else was even close. He had 210 hits, uh, 29 homers, 114 RBI. Eddie Murray had a 5.2 war with 174 hits, um, 32 home runs, 110 RBI. Robin Yount's average was higher. Um, Robin Yount had a better year. Now, 83, he lost to his teammate, Cal Ripken. Cal Ripken, yes. And in a very close vote, Ripken had 322 uh, voting points. Yes. Eddie Murray had 290. So he easily could have won MVP that year. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very fair. So, I mean, two well-deserved uh, MVPs in Robin Yount and uh, Cal Ripken, that, uh, for sure. So to recap real quick, Cal Ripken, Brooks Robinson, Jim Palmer, and Eddie Murray round out the Baltimore Orioles list. Team number two is definitely one of the older American League franchises, if not maybe the oldest American League franchise, um, the Boston Red Sox. The Boston Red Sox have, have had many of, many of great teams we also know that their history included an 86-year drought. It's ama- it really from, is amazing. When from you say 1918 it. to 2004. So I mean, you think about the list of players that put on the Red Sox uniform from 1919 until 2003 and didn't win a World Series. It's, it's amazing. I How mean, many great players? And and th- this player that we're going to start off with may very well be the greatest player in baseball history to not win a World Series. And that's Ted Williams. Yes. Ted Williams, and remember, Ted, Will- Ted Williams missed a couple of years due, due to military service. Yep. He lost 1943. Joe D as well. Joe DiMaggio as well. Spoiler alert, we might get to him later. <laughs> um, he just might. 1943, 1944, 1945. Three Ted, prime prime years of his career. Ted Williams' birthday is was August 30th. So his age 23 season was 1942, in which he finished second in the MVP voting. So ages, his age 24, his age 25, and age 26 season were lost due to military service in World War II. I mean, just think about how many more home runs and RBIs he could have driven in. How many more hits he could have compiled. I mean... He's the all-time leader with a 482 on-base percentage in his career. He led the league in home runs four times. 19- and he wasn't really like a home run hitter. He really wasn't. Um, his they own, just came naturally. His only 40 home run season was his MVP year of 1949. That was his second of uh, two MVPs. He, had, he uh, hit 343 that year. With forty, with forty three home runs and one hundred and fifty nine RBIs. In nineteen forty six, when coming back from the military service, he hit three forty two, with thirty eight homers, one hundred and twenty three RBIs, and that was his first MVP. Oh, and oh, by the way, he's the last player in baseball history to finish the season hitting over four hundred. Still is, and he did not win the MVP that year. Joe DiMaggio, Joe DiMaggio won the 1941 MVP. Right, right. So, I mean, you're talking about 
and he scored. And, and in forty, in nineteen forty one, he led the majors with with thirty seven home runs. He drove in hundred and twenty RBIs. He scored hundred and thirty five runs, hundred and eighty five hits. I mean, year after year, Ted Williams' greatness w- was on display, and especially between. N- you know, obviously, when he came up from 1939 to 1942, and then from 1946 to 1951, I mean, just in that block alone, he was one of the greatest players of all time. 521 was the number that he ended up with home run wise, at 525 doubles. I mean, and there, there. There wasn't a, and at that time there was not a sweeter left-handed swing than Ted Williams. No, nope. I mean he was he was the example, and I don't know if you have the same memory I do, but I remember the first All Star game I watched was the nineteen ninety nine All Star game when he was carted out with at you know, Fenway at yeah. Fenway Park uh, when they were doing the. Oh, I think I believe it was the All Century team or something. Yes, and I mean, you just felt greatness in the air, appreciation. Yeah. yeah, and that's really, you know, and it was really the last time we saw Ted Williams because he only died. He he passed away a few years later, but I mean, how it just to be the appreciation for how special, how special mm-hmm. he was. Yes. As a player. Absolutely. Um, one final nugget on Ted Williams, because uh, this is something that you'll never see anymore. He walked 2,021 times as opposed to 709 strikeouts. <laughs> I mean, there are guys who will get 700 strikeouts in three seasons. It, yes. I mean, in today's, in today's day and age. Yep. And he retired a career 344 batter. Hit 344 for his career. Incredible. So... Ted Williams is player number one for the Red Sox. Player number two, Yaz. Carl Yastrzemski. I mean, Yaz hits hit some of the hit some of the biggest home runs. He, you know, was an MVP for them in 1967, where he where he uh, led the league with 44 home runs, 121 RBIs. If I'm not mistaken. Yaz had the last triple crown, the '67 triple crown. Was mm-hmm. I believe the last triple crown until Miguel Cabrera. Uh, Miguel Cabrera. I think that was Miguel's twenty twelve. Well, right, Miguel's twenty twelve season. So I mean, you're talking about a big span of uh, forty five years without a major league triple crown, and he was a th- uh, Yaz was a three time batting champ. Led the league in on-base percentage five times. His o- his career OPS was eight forty one. Hit four hundred and fifty two home runs. Um, s- s- this is just stupid. Six hundred and forty six career doubles. Mm. Scored eight one thousand eight hundred and sixteen runs scored. I mean, it it is just. Incredible. It is incredible the kind of career that he had. He won seven gold gloves. As I mentioned, three-time batting champ. All-star game MVP. And, oh, by the way, has a grandson in Major League Baseball. As a, yes. fun, as a fun fact. Mike Yastrzemski. 
who has who has uh, turned out to be a solid baseball player himself. Right. But you know, there it's literally these two, Ted Williams and Yaz, truly stand high above the rest when it comes to the Boston Red Sox. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are these are truly uh, Red Sox royalty. So Carl Yastrzemski is player number two. Player number three, things get a little more interesting because there, there are quite a few players who are worthy of a nomination because this, despite the lack of championships, and uh, I mean, actually, they do have a lot of championships. They have, I believe, either seven or eight World, Ch- World Series titles. Yes, it's just five came before 1918. <laughs> right, I mean, they won the 1903 World Series, the 1912 yeah. World Series, the 1914 World Series, 1918. I mean, they, they won plenty of times. Prior to 1918, and ever since they broke the curse in 04, they they won uh, three other championships in Correct. seven, thirteen, and eighteen. Yeah. Uh, player number three, we kind of wrestled with this one a little bit, but once we uh, really determined uh, their their career and their impact, oh, we definitely settled on them. Number three, Pedro Martinez. I mean. You talk about pure dominance. You know when you when you when you're when you're a ba- when you're a professional baseball player and you're looking at the opposing lineup card, and you saw Pedro Martinez as the opposing pitcher. There was legitimate fear yes. from the greatest that ever played the game. You know, these are the these are the greatest baseball players ever. If if you make the major leagues, you're a great baseball player because it of course. you know. There's a, there's 30 professional teams, and there's 25 now 26 roster spots. If you're one of those, you're you're in a select company. Not everybody, a- and I've always been of the belief, hitting a baseball is probably the hardest thing to do in professional sports. I agree, especially when you have a guy like this, who could throw 100 miles an hour, but also drop off a 75 mile an hour curveball, and you no idea where it's going. Yep. Oh, by the way, he throws it at the same exact arm slot. So good luck telling where that, where, 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 yeah. you know, what he's, he's throwing at what that. time. He won two of his three Cy Youngs with the Boston Red Sox. He won five ERA titles in the span of, of four ERA titles with the Red Sox in a span of six six years. And the other were no were no were no slouches either. He had a two. He had a 2.89 ERA and a 19-7 record the year he got to Boston. And this was after coming. And and remember, he gets to Boston in 1998 after winning the National League Cy Young in 1997 with the Montreal Expos. And, you know, first of all, I don't know what the Dodgers were thinking, giving up on him after two years at 21 years old. How about the Expos after what he did with them, getting rid of him? Yeah. I mean, they, they get rid of him at 25 years old. I mean, it's so hard to give up on somebody. Now, I don't know if it was a financial. Probably, but he, still, it's not an excuse. He, so on November 18, 1997, he was traded by the Montreal Expos to the Boston Red Sox for a player to be named later and Carl Pavano. The Boston Red Sox later sent Tony Armas to Ooh. be the player to be named later. 
Um, you talk about wow. lopsided. That's about as lopsided yeah, as it gets. That's one of the most lopsided. It paid off. But not only that, but not only was Pedro dominant, and aside from maybe Bob Gibson's 1968 season, in which the mounds ended up being lowered because he was so ridiculous, 1999 Pedro Martinez might be one of the five greatest individual seasons a pitcher has ever had. Yes, because of the era that he's in, the steroid era in the American League East, where I believe there's a stat. I'm going to look, you, you can continue. Uh, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to look at his ERA compared to the second place, but sure. Yeah, so, continue. so that year he led the majors with a 2.07 ERA, went 23 and 4, made 29 starts, 31 appearances. He struck out 313 batters. Now, that's another thing that we don't see anymore is 300 strikeouts. Now, I believe it was 2019, Max Scherzer struck out 300 hitters. And, but, we, but it's not something that we, we've, we've, we've come accustomed to uh, anymore. And, you know, to, 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 win, to win the ERA title, again, like I said, four times... And not only was that is it that dominant, he had a 1.74 ERA the next year in, 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 in 2000. You know, and, you know, I mean, he gave up, he, he gave up 188 hits. I'm sorry, 160 hits in 213 innings that year. And a whip, his whip was below one, 0 0.92 that year. So, I mean... It's arguably one of the greatest seasons anybody has ever had. Back-to-back. Back. He had two back-to-back back of the greatest seasons. Um, so here's the stat that I think tells you all you need to know about how great Pedro was. And then I'll get to my point on Pedro. Sure. Um, Pedro's ERA in 2000. Which was the league leader, 174. 1.74. Second place in the American League was Roger Clemens. At three point seven zero, so that's nearly two full two runs. full runs better. I mean, that is one of the most. That, that's got to be one of the more lopsided ERA titles in baseball history. I mean, to be two full runs ahead. You'll of, never see that again. To uh, ahead, of, ahead of a pitcher who was great in his own right and won seven Cy Youngs, right? Roger Clemens. So, I mean, it just speaks volumes and. You know, he led, the, he led the league in strikeouts two other times in 2000 and 2002. But, I mean, and, and Pedro was one of the catalysts towards bringing a championship and ending the curse. He really was. Yeah, it was going to be my point. So, just, yeah, quickly for me, um, you know, if, if there were a Red Sox fan sitting here, what they would— what they would believe to be, other than besides from Ted Williams and Carly Ostremski, those are the clear top two. What they would want on their Mount Rushmore are two guys who caused the Yankees, their most hated rival, the most pain and suffering. And to me, you know, to go along with the fact that, you know, Pedro was part of the team that broke the curse in 2004. So Pedro would be one of those guys. And then our fourth guy on the Mount Rushmore is Big Poppy David Ortiz. It has to be. be. It would be David Ortiz, yes. So player number four, 
is David Ortiz. I mean, you could literally just when you when you look at his career in totality, you literally could just scrap out the six years he spent in Minnesota because what he turned into when he got to the Boston Red Sox in two thousand three was was something to behold. I mean, even Theo Epstein couldn't have you know imagined that he turned into what no he turned into. no, and he was one of, he's one of those guys that you had no. I think that's what's so special about David Ortiz is he's not one of those guys who expected to be one of the great players of all time. You ex- you just, you didn't know what you were going to get. You know, in six years with Minnesota, he was a career two eighty six hitter. Oh, I'm sorry, he was a career, he was a career two sixty six hitter uh, with fifty eight home runs and two hundred and thirty eight RBIs. You know, playing in four hundred and fifty five games. So it's not even like he was really a full-time player uh, with the right. Minnesota Twins. All of a sudden, he comes to the Boston Red Sox and, you know, settles, you know, ends up settling in as the DH and yep. puts together a monster run year after year. And David Ortiz, three-time world champion, 10-time All-Star, a World Series MVP, an ALCS MVP, a seven-time Silver Slugger, I mean, I know this brings up awful memories for you, John, but I mean, his impact in the 04 ALCS can very rarely be matched by anybody in a yes, single in a single postseason series. It's true. He had the um, walk-off home run in game four. No, in game five. He had a he had a big role in games four and five in Boston, getting the series back to New York, and um, I'm sure he had. I thought if I remembered, he had the walk off homer in game four and a walk off base hit in game five. Yeah, I think you're right. Actually, he had the walk. So. He had two straight walk offs, and that and that's and that's what sent the and that's what sent the series back to Yankee Stadium for games six and seven. And yeah. I mean. And if you and if you think about that series for a second, I mean, especially if you look at Game Three, I mean, it was dubbed the Boston Massacre. I mean, the, with the Yankees with the Yankees winning nineteen to eight, and I just wonder if that was the worst thing that could have happened to the Yankees because, I mean, did they get it in their heads? I mean, because then Game Four became extremely competitive. I mean, the, I mean, as great as or and as great as Ortiz was. There was no play that was more important than the Dave Roberts steal, right? And that got that ended up getting that game tied when he scored the game tying run. But the impact that David Ortiz had, and the impact he had on all the World Series teams that he was on, whether it was the 2014, the 2017, or the 2013 team, I mean, and not to mention that, just think about how much of a leadership role he played in the healing of the city of Boston post uh, the Boston Marathon bombing. Yes. You know, that has to be taken. If I'm not, and if I'm not mistaken, that was 2013, was it not? It was. And they, won the, and, they won the World and, Series And they won the year. World Series that year. And, you know, that, you know, as great of a Red Sox as he was, that was the year he became a, a true Bostonian. And, yeah, and and that and that's when he officially became revered by the city of Boston, 
And, and well, Boston's had plenty of greats throughout their entire history of sports, whether it's Bobby Orr, Bill Russell, Tom Brady, you could go on, Larry Bird, you could go on and on for days about Boston individually. But that's where he became truly revered as a Boston icon. Absolutely. And, you know, and we're talking about David Ortiz in a year where it's very possible, if not all that likely, he gets to go into the Hall of Fame. And deservedly so. I mean, he hit 483 of his 541 career home runs with the Boston Red Sox. So, I mean, not just the... it's For, for David Ortiz, it's not just about the numbers. It's really about the impact that he had to not only the team, but the city. So, yep. player number four is David Ortiz. Now, we shall not waste any more time. We're going to go to John's New York Yankees. Now, let's go. Let's be let's be honest here. Th- these four are literally not up for debate, and I think we're going to do something a little bit different. I mean, because th- there's really no need to break down the career stats of these four. I mean, no. if, you, if you don't they speak for themselves, yeah. I mean, their names alone just speak greatness, and I I'm just going to read them off because. I think we could do better justice serving almost like a next four with the New York Yankees. Yes. Where there's more of a debate. I mean, from, you know, it, whether it's Babe Ruth, who is clearly number one. He is. It's the Iron Horse, Lou Gehrig. You know, we just talked about the impact of his consecutive game streak when talking about Cal Ripken. Yep. Yep. Joe DiMaggio who had a 56-game hitting streak and won the MVP over one of the greatest seasons that Ted Williams had. And then Mickey Mantle. I mean, Mickey Mantle was a wild wild dude. Yes. But he was a great baseball player. Also, Mickey Mantle also might be the greatest what-if in baseball history as well. Yes, you you can tell the story. He ripped up his knee... At Yankee Stadium, on you know, when they had the when the sprinkler systems were still visible, you know, and you know, and and let and he had five hundred thirty six career home runs, most ever for a switch hitter. But he's definitely somebody who could have had close to seven hundred. Oh yeah, I mean Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle's up for debate as one of the the Mount Rushmores of all time. Mm-hmm. You know, as as well as obviously Babe Ruth, but you know these these guys speak for themselves. We don't need to go breaking down Babe Ruth's career. If you don't, if you're a baseball fan, you don't understand Babe Ruth's career. It's like the Sandlot. Yeah, I mean, if if, if you if you if you don't understand Babe Ruth's career by now, then baseball's probably not your sport. Yes, you know, if you're not well versed in the story of Lou Gehrig and how great his career was. To the ALS that you know ended his career, uh, and eventually led to his death pretty quickly. Um, if you don't know the deal about Joe D and and Mickey, I mean, you're not a baseball no. fan. No, you don't you don't know the history of the game. So John is going to, as the Yankee fan, he's going to give us who he truly believes would be on that 
next four. Yeah, the second Mount Rushmore, if you will. Yeah, because this is the great. This is not just the greatest franchise in all of baseball. This is the greatest franchise of professional sports. It is. They have the most championships. They, yep, they are above and beyond everybody else. The only team that could come anywhere close, and gosh, they haven't won in almost thirty years. Montreal. The Montreal Canadiens. They've won twenty four titles. And don't give me last year because they they had no biz they had no business being in the Stanley Cup Finals. The worst last team in, the, in hockey right now. They had the oh my god they're bad. But this is not a hockey podcast. Yeah. This is a baseball podcast. So, John, who would you yes. have on your next four? So I'm going to start um, with my number five being who I believe to be the greatest pitcher in Yankees history, uh, the greatest relief pitcher in baseball history. And that is Mariano Rivera. Yes. Um, the numbers speak for themselves. Uh, career, he's the all-time leader in saves with um, 652. He has a career ERA of 2.21, which for the era he pitched in is incredible. But that doesn't even do him justice. In the postseason in his career, and he played the postseason for uh, 12 years in a row and then for another four years. He pitched, so 16 seasons total. His career ERA in the postseason is 0.70. I mean, he's the greatest of all time. He did it for so long. He was just as close to automatic as you could get in a player at any position. You knew 99 times out of 100 when Mariano Rivera is entering a game, the game is over. No matter what. And you knew what pitch is coming for the most part. You know the cutter's coming, and he, he, it was so dominant. It was so – his control was so perfect. He knew exactly what to do at the right moment that teams just had no chance. Batters had no chance. And it was a joy to watch him for um, most of my childhood, into my teenage years, and uh, even some of my 20s. Uh, briefly, briefly, briefly in my 20s. I mean, that's, how old, that's how long he pitched? Yep. I mean, that's, that's, that's how long Mariano was dominant. Yeah, you know, as a reliever. Uh, so Mo is number five, number six for me, um, and you, know, you swap six, seven. Uh, number six for me is uh, Derek Jeter, the captain, uh, DJ three K, the Kalamazoo kid, whatever, whatever nickname <laughs> you want to uh, bestow upon him. Derek Sanderson Jeter, um, born in New Jersey, uh, 2020 uh, Hall of Fame inductee. Uh, the numbers speak for themselves. They really do. Uh, five-time World Series champion, 3,465 hits, which is sixth all-time. Think about that. Sixth all-time in baseball history. Only five guys who have ever played in the big leagues have more hits than Derek Jeter. Yep. And might I add, and might I add one quick thing about Mariano Rivera? Yeah, the please. first and only unanimous Hall of Famer. Yes, <laughs> because Jeter missed out by one vote. <laughs> and I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think we've heard from that one writer ever since. We have not. I hope he's still not. I hope he's still not voting on the Hall of Fame. <laughs> but me too. Um, and a career uh, batting average of three ten, which uh, you know in this day and age is very good. Uh, near almost 2,000 runs scored. He had 1,923 runs scored. Um, more than respectable numbers elsewhere. 
14-time All-Star, five-time Gold Glover, which I know, according to some, could be, you know, maybe it was deserved, maybe it wasn't, but he won them. Um, World Series MVP and All-Star MVP, I believe, in the same year, 2000. Five-time Silver Slugger. Oh, and, you know, Rookie of the Year as well. Wins a World Series in his first year. Just steps from the moment he stepped onto the field at Yankee Stadium. From the moment I became a, a baseball fan and a Yankee fan in the late 90s, specifically around 98, um, Derek Jeter was he was just there every day, batting either leadoff or, or number two. And um, it was it was a, it was, you know, an honor and a privilege to to watch his career. Just he's exactly what you'd want in a ball player. He showed up every day. He was consistent. He was the same player every day. Didn't matter if it was game seven of the World Series or Wednesday night in April. He came to play the same way every day. And, you know, that's the lesson you, uh, the father should teach their sons how to play baseball. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that strikes you the most about Derek Jeter. And, I, uh, and you know, again, another player who the numbers speak for themselves. Um, but the, 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 the class that he carried himself with, you know, the dignity, the pride, you know, how proud he was to put on the Yankee pinstripes day in and day out. And again, he played in an era where, you know, guys believe it will. You know, guys could go wherever they want. Derek Jeter never put on another uniform. Derek Jeter was a lifelong Yankee through, and he's, he's a Yankee through and through. And I think that's certainly a, a part of his story about how he's just a true, he's a true Yankee. Yes. Except except now Absolutely. he's a, except now he's a now he's, he's now, a Marlins. Now he's, he's a part owner. He's the owner. He's part of he's, the Marlins. He's the basically the face of the ownership group. Um. So my number seven, uh, Yankee, or my third on the second Mount Rushmore, uh, is Lawrence Peter Yogi Berra. Um. You know. Everyone, you know, even non-baseball fans know him from his, his witness, you know, his crazy sayings and non-sequiturs and, you know, what have you, you know. I asked him to cut the pizza in, you know, into six slices because I couldn't eat eight. <laughs> when you come to a fork in the road, take it. It ain't over till it's over. It's, he's Yogi. Even Pete, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you never watched a baseball game in your life. You know who Yogi Berra is. And so his influence certainly extended outside of baseball and outside of sports to pop culture. But <laughs> on the field, he, he wasn't, you know, he was nothing to sneeze at either. Ten-time World Series champion. Eighteen-time All-Star. Three-time MVP. For his, for his time, uh, very good numbers. Uh, 2,150 hits, 358 home runs. Uh, lifetime OPS of 830. Um, just, he was on one of the great teams, uh, ever. One of the absolute most dynastic teams ever. Specifically, the 47 to 63 Yankees, where they won, I believe they, they won, uh, 10, they won 10 World Series and they were in the World Series almost every year. Yeah, didn't they win like 10 out of 11 years or something like that? Yeah. I mean, it's just and he was incredible. he was there. He was calling the game for every pitcher. He was, um, 
He was certainly, and he was one of their better hitters as well. So, uh, and of course, played his whole career with um, with the Yankees, other than you know one <laughs> brief stint of four games with the Mets in 1965. I actually forgot about that. He was, so. and he was the, and he was the manager that took us to the 1973 World Series. He was, um, and he was still, hey, this is a man. This is a man who took it to his grave that uh, Jackie Robinson was out at home plate. Yes, <laughs> in the '55 World Series, one of the most famous plays in baseball history. The ste- the stealing of home, but yep. I mean, can't you can't argue with any of them? I mean, whether it's Mariano, uh, Derek, or Yogi Berra. I mean, those guys were. Those guys are certainly top four. On probably all twenty nine you know, other other organizations. That's that's mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, and now my fourth guy um, on this second Mount Rushmore. Uh, to me, it's a fairly obvious choice, uh, and that would be Whitey Ford. He went with the chairman they're, of the board. They're the team's greatest starting pitcher uh, of all time. Uh, some quick stats on him. A 10-time All-Star, 6-time World Series champion, World Series MVP, um, won two ERA titles, uh, as well as a Cy Young. Had a career ERA of 2.75, which is remarkable. That's filthy. That's just absolute filth. <laughs> um, had a career win-loss record of 236 and 106, which is one of the best of all time. I mean, yeah, um, that, that winning percentage is just out of this amazing. world. And similar to Yogi, he pitched uh, for one of the you know one of the most successful teams. In baseball history, um, the 50s into uh, early 60s Yankees. And the numbers, the stories speak for themselves. He was their best pitcher over, really, uh, a 14-year span. And spent his whole career with the Yankees, the chairman of the board. Uh, Whitey is absolutely deserving of that uh, last spot. And and think about this for a second, and because especially when we talked about Yogi Berra and Derek Jeter, there's two points that jump out with me. Well, number one, you could argue that this Yankee dynasty, that the the era that Yogi and Whitey Ford played on, is the best, if not rivals, maybe the Boston Celtics dynasty. Yes, um, it, it's a very comparable dynasty uh, that the Celtics had in the NBA. Uh, that the Yankees Absolutely. did in that 10-year and 11... 10 titles and 11-year run. And two, the one commonality, one common theme about all these... all eight Yankees that we talked about, with the exception of what you said, four games with the New York Mets, all of them played every single game Career with the New York, Yankees. New York Yankees. I mean... That means something. You know, guys that we were... guys that we were talking about before, like Eddie Murray played for the Dodgers, played for the Mets. You know, while we know him as an Oriole... He played for those teams. Uh, Pedro. Pedro Martinez played for the Dodgers and Expos. Went to the Mets and the Phillies. You know, David Ortiz started his career with the, with the Minnesota Twins. So, I mean, these guys were true through and through New York Yankees. I think that is the biggest thing that I really take out of it. So, so to recap, obviously the, the top four. Babe, Lou Gehrig, Joe D. Mickey Mantle, and then John has Mariano Rivera, Derek Jeter, Yogi Berra, and Whitey Ford as his quote-unquote next four. The guys that, you know, could be a Mount Rushmore on any other team. 
but with the greatness of the New York Yankees. We they had to settle for the second four. Yes. All right, team number four, we're going to go to the Tampa Bay Rays. Obviously, yes. they were the Devil Rays when they were born in 1998, and this is one of the franchises that we're older than. Yes. You know, there aren't many. There aren't many in professional sports, but the Tampa Bay, the Tampa Bay Devil Rays from 1998 to 2007 were pretty much nothing. You know, they were consistently finishing in last place, fourth place, you know, and, and, for, and for good reason because at that time the Red Sox and the Yankees were great. The Blue Jays occasionally would have a decent year, you know, and the Orioles, you know, had had their share of good years in between then. The Rays just couldn't get their footing. You know, they hired Joe Madden as their manager. It, you know, I believe it was, I believe they hired him in 07 and then he started turning things around in 08. And all of a sudden things, you know, things changed in over these last 12, 13 years. They've been a more consistent consistent threat. You know, and obviously we saw yeah. them win the American League East this year. They won the American League pennant last year for the second time. They've been to the World Series twice. They lost to the Phillies in 2008, and they lost to the Dodgers last year in 2020. So player number one for the Tampa Bay Rays, really one of the few to earn a second contract because they're not That's a good point. They're not a franchise that has a ton of financial capabilities of paying player paying players a nine-figure contract, yet, uh, yet, yet this man received a six-year, $100 million option prior, uh, contract prior to the 2017 season. That's Evan Longoria. You know, Evan Longoria basically is Mr. Right. I mean, he won Rookie of the Year in 2008, and he basically culminated the start of what was a more successful era. I mean, 261 home runs, 892 RBIs, a career two, uh, 270 hitter. And, you know, and I, and I remember, and you might have been watching this because the Yankees were playing the uh, Rays at the end of the 2011 season. Remember when it was the wildest night in baseball history where... This was the year of the chicken and the beer for the uh, Red Sox, and they collapsed yep. down the stretch. Mm-hmm. And they, but they still needed, they still needed to win. And then a Tampa Bay loss, and then Longoria hits the walk off of the Yankees. The Yankees were the division champs. They, yeah, they were. The game meant nothing to the, the Yankees. Ga- the game meant nothing to the Yankees, but the Yankees, you know, they didn't want to see a division rival in the post in the postseason. Oh no, they were very happy to see the Red Sox eliminated. So. But, you know, Longoria hits that walk-off home run, sends the race to the playoffs, and, you know, he he was a staple day in and day out. I mean, here's a guy who, with the Rays, with the exception of 2012, played over 130 games. And 2011 was the only other time he really played under 150 games with the Rays. Mm-hmm. You know, consistent year after year, 150, 160 hits. I mean, his consistency is, is, you know, consistency 
sometimes outweighs like a couple of great years. Like you knew right. year in and year out, Evan Longoria could come through for the race, and and he and he did that. So, so, so former rookie of the year. He is. He also won three Gold Gloves at third base. So I got Evan Longoria at number one. Number two, Carl Crawford. Now you talk about a player who fell off the face of the earth after he left the Tampa Bay Rays. Mm. Carl Crawford went from this five-tool stud. Well, not really five-tool. He didn't have a ton of power. But this stud who led the league in triples four times to a guy who could barely bat over 250, you know, at the at the end of his, you know, after he left. And when he got to the Red Sox in 2011, he was only 29 years old. So it's not like he was an old player. Right. But, you know... When he was with Tampa Bay, he had almost 1,500 hits. He had 105 triples. I mean, how many players in a, how many players in a nine-year span had 105 triples? That's a lot. Of tri- that's a lot. Of, yeah. That's a lot of triples. Few, few if any. And he led the league in stolen bases four times. And four fifty plus stolen base seasons. I mean, and that's something that and that's something that's a lost art these days. He's a four time All Star. He won the Gold Glove in two thousand and ten with the Rays. I mean, I remember I remember watching him growing up, and you probably you probably saw him more than I did watching Yankee games against the, against the Devil Rays then Rays. I mean, he was just he was just a problem. He was just a, a an absolute nightmare because you knew if you knew if he got on base, a single was automatically a double. Mm-hmm. Whether it's him beating it out, getting to second base, or it is him stealing second or stealing even stealing third. I mean Carl Crawford was just a nightmare to deal with. He was. So I have I have Carl Crawford number two. Um and one of the, and one of the things that never carried over, he was there day in and day out. He was a relatively healthy player with the. He was a relatively healthy player with the Tampa Bay Rays. That the same could not be said when he went to the Red Sox or even the Dodgers, and you know he was a part of that massive trade with uh, Adrian Gonzalez, uh, Josh Nick, Beckett. Was he part of that? Uh, Josh Beckett, Nick Punto. The, those guys all went to the Dodgers in that mega, like, shedding uh, salary type deal. So, I have Carl Crawford at number two. Number three, to me, and you might disagree with this, but this is the only pitcher that I put on the list, um, and that's David Price. Now, just like Evan Longoria, see, Carl Crawford... Okay, we're going to pause baseball for just a second. A lineman just scored a touchdown for the Buffalo Bills. Yes. Um, this is this is out of control. The New England Patriots are just getting I can't, smacked. I can't, I can't turn the volume. It's all right. We don't need to have the no. volume on. Um, but This is a massacre. Yeah, it is. But when you look at 
when you when you look at the Carl Crawford, he predated some of the Rays' greatness. Yes. But he stuck around for uh, a few years as they got yeah as they started to get good in 08, 09, 2010. Dave, David Price. David Price, just like Evan Longoria, came up in 2008. Now, he did not have... It's all coming up, Bills. Um, David Price came up in 08, just like Evan Longoria. However, his regular season impact was really nothing. He really only pitched a couple of games. But his, his impact as a reliever in the 08 postseason was a big reason why that team got to the World Series. Absolutely. And then, just a few short years later, he makes his first of five All-Star teams, four of them with the Rays, and finishes runner-up in the Cy Young in 2010. You know, only losing to... Only losing to Felix Hernandez that year. Hmm. So he he finishes runner-up in the 2010 Cy Young, Wins the Cy Young in 2012 with a 20-5 and record, a 2.56 ERA. And still, even though it's not the early 2000s, the AL East has always been a really top-tier hitting, hitting yes. division. Yes. To post a 2.56 ERA um, was certainly worthy. Had 205 strikeouts that year. 2014... While it was split between the Rays and the Tigers, so this was his last year in Tampa, he had a career-high 271 strikeouts, which led the major leagues in 248 innings. I mean, there really can't be much more stated than what he meant in that 2008 postseason because they, they were on their way, you know, you know they you know they had their opportunities to beat Philadelphia but you know just Philadelphia seemed to be the better team at that point yeah no just what i was just going to say on david price was i just remember specifically um the 2008 ALCS race against the red sox i just, i remember watching i don't know if it was game 6 or 7 but i just remember price um on the mound in the ninth inning it was a, it was a close game who's on for the save I just remember, like, because the Red Sox, you know, were defending champs at that point. I just, right. I vividly remember being like, "Let's go, let's go, Price, come on, kick these, kick these assholes out," and he did. And I, I was so happy when the Rays got to the World Series. Anything to prevent the Red Sox. I just, yeah, I, that's my David Price moment. Yeah, I mean that was a that was a re- that was a really good that was a really good ALCS between the Red Sox and the Rays. I mean, here's this up-and-coming team who had never made the postseason before uh, going toe-to-toe with the defending, defending champs, champs. who and easily could have won a second World Series. Yep, and and not only went toe-to-toe, they, they knocked them out. So, you know, David Price had some really, really great years with the Rays. Player number four, you might disagree with me, uh, and... I'd like to hear your reasoning if you had a different player. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna take BJ Upton. Uh, now BJ Upton, more more so like Carl Crawford, came up before they got good. But again, he sta- he stuck around until 2012. So he got to see 
the 2008 success of being the AL champions, what we talked about with Evan Longoria and the end of that 2011 season. You know, in 20, and, and in 2011, 23 home runs, 81 RBIs. You know, in eight years, hit 118 homers, hit, got, got 910 hits and drove in 447 uh, runs and played in, 900, in almost 1,000 games for the Tampa Bay Rays. So I felt like, for me, he made the best case to be player number four. Okay, that's fair. So I liked BJ at okay. player number four. I do understand your argument. Um, for me, though, um, I chose to go with... Um, a guy who, during this recent um, run of Ray's success, specifically 2018 to 2020, I chose to go with um, their best player, pitcher, uh, hitter or pitcher, during those three years to me, and that is um, Blake Snell. And just a quick reasoning why. Um, won, the, uh, won the Cy Young uh, in 2018, had a uh, an unbelievable year, twenty one and five with a one point eight nine ERA, um, two hundred twenty one strikeouts in one hundred eighty innings. Now, yes, that was the only year where he truly put it all together um, for the Rays. But um, you know, for me specifically, uh, I'll go to twenty twenty, um, where in a shortened season. He had he had a three point two four ERA, um, and you know probably would have been on his way to over two hundred strikeouts again, being the ace of the staff. But to me, I just keep going back to that World Series Game Six, uh, twenty twenty World Series Game Six specifically. Yes, and that was one of the five best games I've ever seen pitched by any pitcher in any game in my lifetime, and. To see it, you know, the fact that it was taken away from him by Kevin Cash in a gutless move is a different story. But um, just how great he was on that night, I think he reached a level that no other Tampa Bay Ray player has ever reached in that kind of, a, you know, in that big of an environment. It's a World Series. Right. And he made one of the best offenses in the last 20 years in the National League look like JV players. And um, that performance for me... You know, in a very, you know, kind of a shaky <laughs> franchise, Mount Rushmore, uh, that gets Blake Snow my nod at number four. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a fair argument, especially when when you're right. I mean, the, he had the Dodgers on the ropes from the minute the first pitch was thrown, and you just immediately you kept watching that game. You're like, this is going seven. This is going seven. Blake Snell is just unhittable. And then I really thought it. And then he starts to then he starts to give way a little bit, and I think it was the sixth inning when he started or six the sixth or seventh inning when he started to give way. And he, he did He, he gave he, up he, one hit. He gave up a single up the middle to Austin Barnes. And then Cash came out of the dugout. And went to his bullpen and the re- the rest is history. I mean yeah. the, the the Dodgers started to rally. I mean, granted the Granted, the you know, to slightly defend Kevin Cash because there's not much. 
I mean, taking out a pitcher who was as dominant as Blake Snell was in that game, I mean, it was it was one of the great World Series performances of recent memory. But to to slightly throw like devil's advocate here and play devil's advocate and throw a little defense Kevin Cash's way, the guys he brought in had been clutch. And he was going yeah. with the guys he trusted. However, sometimes you really got to react with your gut and not what the analytic books say, you know, when to take a guy out. I mean, if, if you couldn't tell, Blake wasn't tiring. He was still pitching at a very high level. He was at less than like 80. He was at maybe 80 pitches. I don't like, even. I think it was less. Than I don't even think it was eighty pitches. So, I have BJ Upton at player four. You have Blake Snell. We both agreed on Evan Longoria, Carl Crawford, and David Price. Yes. Uh, for the top three. Now to the final franchise alphabetically that we'll get to, the Toronto Blue Jays. The Toronto Blue Jays. They've been around since the seventies, and they have won themselves two World Series. The only two World Series that they won came back-to-back in 1992 and 1993. Now, you and I were too young. We did not watch those. But one, the, the first player on this list, you know, won a, you know, won a World Series with them the first year. But he was really more of a really solid pitcher in the 1980s, and that's Dave Steeb. Now, Dave Steeb was literally Mr. One-Hitter because so many times he, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was either two or three times he brought a no-hitter not only to the ninth inning but to, like, the ninth inning with two outs before a hit. Yeah, yeah. Before a hit breaks it up. Now, fortunately for him, I I don't remember exactly what year it was, he eventually got his no-hitter. So justice finally did come for Dave Steeb, but you know Dave Steeb pitched 16 years in the big leagues. You know all but 35. You know all but uh, all but four appearances were with the Toronto Blue Jays. He pitched in four games for the Chicago White Sox in 1993, but that but that was it. The rest of his career with the Toronto Blue Jays, a career 3.42 ERA. Um, he won 175 games as opposed to 134 losses. Uh, struck out 1,658 hitters in 2,873 innings. He only gave up 20, he only gave up 2,545 hits, which when you give up less than a hit per inning, you're that's definitely doing something right. Um, yes. You know, 103. Career complete games, including a league leading 19 in 1982. And he finished fourth in the Cy Young voting that year. He was also a seven time All Star. And in 1985, won the ERA title at 2.48. Now, you want to talk about, you want to talk about getting hosed. He was 14 and 13 that year. How does somebody lose 13 games? And win the ERA title. I mean that that that's about that's about as yeah, he got hosed by his offense. That, that, yeah, that's about as hosed as you get in terms of the lack of run support. That's Jacob Degrom territory right there. Uh, pretty much. I mean, but 
but you know, but and and Steve threw 30, 30 shutouts in his career. You know, you'd be lucky to see an entire league throw thirty shutouts. Entire league of starting pitchers throw thirty shutouts over the next ten years. Right at this rate, you know, so different era. It's it just it, it just is a different era. And this was and this was forty years. This was you know about forty years ago, and you know. He was probably the first of the of the well known pitchers in Blue Jays in the Blue Jays era. So number one is Dave Steve. Number two, Roy Halliday. Hundred percent. This man was the last of the Bulldogs because you know as complete games start dying down, Roy Halliday managed. To, Still rack up plenty of them. And, you know, his his impact in Toronto was incredible. I mean, in the early 2000s, whether, you know, whether it was, you know, during the Carlos Delgado years or, you know, in the late, you know, even in the late 90s. Roy Halladay won two Cy Youngs. Now, one of them did come with the Philadelphia Phillies, so he did win one in each league. But in his 12 years with the Blue Jays, he he threw 49 complete games. You just again, you just don't see that anymore. And this is a guy who pitched in the 2000s. Right. So, that makes it all the more impressive as to what Halliday did. Now, his first Cy Young season was 2003, and I actually remember this year pretty well. He was 22 and seven with a 3.25 ERA, and in 266 innings, struck out 204 hitters, and he and and he had nine complete games that year, two complete game shutouts. I mean, when are we going to see? And this is from 2007 to 2011, which coincides with the start of his Phillies career. When are we going to see a five-year stretch of seven, nine, 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 eight? That's the number of complete games that he threw each year. Ever the way again. the game is going now, you, you're not, you might not see it for 100 years. So Roy Halladay is really the, la- the last of a kind, you know, and... Not somebody that we're ever going to see again, because he because he was the last of the bulldogs, and you know we could coin the term bulldog for a guy like maybe Max Scherzer or Clayton Kershaw, but even they don't have the complete game numbers that Roy Halladay did right. back in the, back in the early to mid two thousands. He even pitched up until two thousand thirteen. You know, in which he threw his, you know, he threw his last complete game in 2013 uh, with the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, obviously, he's forever immortalized at Rogers Center with his number 32 hanging in the rafters, and is is in the Hall of Fame. Now, unfortunately, we lost him too soon, and he didn't get to have his day in Cooperstown. You know, his family was there for him, but. The impact of Roy Halladay on the mound certainly left 
a lasting impact because of just of how rare what he does today. What he did then is today. Yes. So agree. Roy Halladay is number two. The the third player on my list um, is somebody I enjoyed watching with the New York Mets. Now he will not. He is not known for being a New York Met. He is known for spending his career with the Toronto Blue Jays, and that's Carlos Delgado. Carlos Delgado spent the first dozen years of his career up north in Canada. He hit 336 of his 473 career home runs with the Blue Jays. Drove in 1,058 runs, scored 889 runs, had 1,413 hits. Carlos Delgado, probably one of the first great true sluggers in Blue Jays history. You know, they had some they had some great hitters in the 90s, you know. A guy we, a guy we might get to at number 4. A guy we, a guy we could certainly get to on this list. Um but I mean, the pure numbers year in and year out, you know, 1999, 272, 44 home runs, 134 RBIs, 2000 um, that is 344. By the way, 344 did not get him a batting title. Wow. 41 home runs, 137 RBIs, 196 hits, 57 doubles. Mm. Hit 343 career doubles. And I don't know what defenders fell down, but somehow he had 11 triples. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know how that happened. Yeah, I, not a guy with much speed. <laughs> no. Speed was not his thing. Somebody fell down. Yeah. 1,413 hits. I mean, when you needed a big hit, Carlos Delgado was there for you. I mean, he would, he came through in such a big way for the early Blue Jays teams of the 2000s. And unfortunately, I think he gets a little bit lost in the shuffle because... Other than the 2006 Mets, you know, he really wasn't on a team that was... Well, 07 and 08, the Mets were in contention, too, before falling out of it with their collapses. But he was really never on a team that was in true contention. So I think he kind of gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. But, But Delgado's impact cannot be understated with the Toronto Blue Jays. So Carlos Delgado is player number three. And last but not least, this is the last of our teams, the last of our players. Had the most important home run in franchise mm-hmm. history. Could argue the greatest home run in World Series history. Might be. You want to you give me Bill Mazarowski, 1960? I'm up for debate as well. That was game seven. But Joe Carter, player number four. Joe Carter, truly one of the first. And he, you know, he got to, he, he was a guy who spent a lot of years, he did spend a lot of years on other teams. But he did spend, but the, the bulk of his career was with the Toronto Blue Jays. He got there in 1991 after spending a year with the San Diego Padres and six with the Cleveland Indians. 
after debuting as a rookie in '83 with the Cubs. So mm. obviously he was by the time bounced he bounced around a little bit. Right by the time he got to the Blue Jays at age 31, he had bounced around. But in his seven years from 1991 to midway through the 19 to, to the 1997 season, he was a very important figure for the Blue Jays. Hit 30 home runs for the Blue Jays four times in seven years. He he drove in 100 runs six times in seven years. 1995 being the lone exception, 76 RBIs. But these are all regular season stats. The, be- the biggest home run he ever hit was to win the 1993 World Series. And sure. it, it can't be understated not only what it did for the... Not only did what it did for the Blue Jays, but what it did for the country of Canada. Mm-hmm. You know, there is... You know, while the Yankees might be the most rooted for fan base in baseball, you know, the one thing that the Blue Jays have over the Yankees is an entire country. Yes. You know, the Expos existed from 1969 to 2004, but the Blue Jays have remained. And the Blue Jays are Canada's lone baseball team. Yep. And and if you th- and if you think about it, you look at the look at the Canadian teams that have won a championship. The Canadians last championship was 1993. The Blue Jays last championship was 1993. Mm. And up until just a couple of years ago, the Raptors had, never, yeah. the Raptors had never won a title. Right. So that was the first ever professional sports championship for Canada outside of hockey. Yeah. The Blue Jays. Yeah, in it was. In 1992. So that was important. Exactly. So you know, what Joe Carter did to not only captivate a city, but to captivate a country, uh, you know, I think speaks volumes for how important he and how important he was to the franchise. So... I mean, and, and Carter made the All-Star team five times as a Blue Jay and, and two top five MVP finishes, both in 1991 and 1992. So Joe Carter is our fourth and final Blue Jay. So to recap here, the Orioles, we went with Cal Ripken, Brooks Robinson, Jim Palmer, and Eddie Murray. For the Red Sox, we went with Ted Williams, Carl Yastrzemski, Pedro Martinez, David Ortiz. For the Yankees, in Tier 1 is obviously Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle. And the top of Tier 2, based on John's uh, opinion, Mariano Rivera, Derek Jeter, Yogi Berra, and Whitey Ford. And I can hardly even disagree on that. Right. For the Tampa Bay Rays, Evan Longoria, Carl Crawford, David Price. I had B.J. Upton fourth. He had Blake Snell fourth. For the Toronto Blue Jays, Dave Steeb, Roy Holiday, Carlos Delgado, and Joe Carter. So was there only one player we disagreed with on the whole list? There was only one. Blake Snell versus B.J. Upton. Yes. Which, really, I, I would have no problem with B.J. Upton. It could be, player. Honestly, that could be a toss-up. I mean... 
the Rays were probably the most the toughest one to, to do. You know, being a younger franchise and a franchise that you know has had little has had little success. I mean, more success recently, but you know, they don't have any championships to speak of. Right. Uh, so, really, that was probably the toughest of the five teams. So, so that's going to do it for this edition. Um, we'll talk to you again next time with the American League Central, and we will keep on we will keep on rolling with this Mount Rushmore for baseball banter. So again, you can catch us on the Sokoa Media Network. You can catch it on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And you can also catch this episode live at some point during the week on Sportswire Radio. So have a good night. Take it easy.